0: Morning everybody. Let's do a mic check. Good morning. <laughs> so when I was young, my grandmother had uh, been divorced for quite some time and she met and married a man named Walter. I was about 13 years old at this time. I think this picture is I right was 16 or 17 there. And uh, Walter and I really hit it off. Um, I spent as much time with Walter as I could, kind of soaking up the wisdom of a man who'd lived a hard life. He'd lost several children. He'd lived through the Depression. His first job was at age six, and he knew things, and I enjoyed spending time with him. Uh, One of my favorite um, sayings that he would use uh, would pop up quite often when we were talking about politics or life or current events or world events or really any kind of heavy subject. I would ask him a question, or suggest a topic, and everything about his posture would change. Sorry. He would lean forward, and he would look at the floor, or look at his hands, and he would get really quiet, and he would say, you just touched a nerve. I loved when he said that, because I knew what was going to follow was going to be a fascinating perspective on whatever that subject was. It touched a nerve. What Walter was conveying when he said that was that all of the other things that could be talked about had to be set aside because this one thing, whatever it was, whatever it happened to be, it took over and consumed his thoughts, and he had to focus on it. That's what Jesus is doing In the parable that we're going to look at today. He's trying to get us to set aside any distractions that we have in our lives, anything that we're focusing on other than this, because the lesson that is in this parable is of paramount importance. With this parable, he doesn't just touch a nerve, he hammers it. Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we uh, thank you for this morning as as Larry prayed, Lord. I echo everything that he prayed. And uh, with that perspective, Lord, it is such a privilege to gather together in the safety of this room, in the safety of fellowship with one another, and learn from your word. And we don't want to miss that, Lord. Thank you so much. We just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So let me set this up. Imagine you're retiring Imagine that just for a second. You've worked your entire life so far, scrimping, saving, making smart financial decisions, self-denying decisions, denying yourself all the things you would have loved to have done for the sake of saving for your future. And now you're ready to finally launch on this next season of life, and it's exciting and it's hopeful. And then imagine you wake up in the morning and you turn on the news, and you see the man who's been managing your retirement funds being walked out of his office in handcuffs. So you pull out your phone, you open up your app to check your balances, and it's all gone. Every penny is gone. Now imagine you happen to be in the same room as that man, and you see him standing off in a corner looking all wretched and crying out to God for forgiveness. Maybe you're disgusted by that. Maybe you'd wish that lightning would just come down and split his head open or the roof would cave in. You've been faithful and hardworking. You've checked all the boxes. You've done all the right things, but this guy, he's just pure evil. How dare he even attempt to approach God, let alone ask for forgiveness? But then you hear Jesus declare that not only is that man forgiven, but that he's justified in God's eyes. Did that touch a nerve? So let's read the parable. We're in Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. He said... Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a 10th of everything I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This parable doesn't carry the same amount of weight or oomph for us as it did to the audience that Jesus was speaking to, and that's because we don't know any Pharisees or tax collectors, and unless you're a student of Bible history, you really can't wrap your head around what these two types of people represented. So we're gonna spend a little bit of time exploding that. We're gonna look at um, who tax collectors were, who Pharisees were, but before we do that, we're gonna look at the first line of this section because there's something in there that we don't wanna gloss over. It's extremely important. And in that first sentence, what Jesus does is he describes who his audience is, who he's talking to. So verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. So not only does he tell us precisely who he's talking to or who his audience is, but in doing so, he draws a clear distinction. There's only two sides that a person can be on. The side that he's directly addressing, or the other side? He doesn't leave any room for innocent bystanders. Jesus puts these people, the righteously arrogant, on one side, and on the other side are those people, those who are held in contempt by this side. And what we have to do as hearers of this message is decide which side we're on are we these people who consider themselves more righteous than others or are we those people none of the above is not an option of course the obvious answer for those those of us who don't want to be the bad guy as well of course i'm one of those people i'm not one of those arrogant people those folks can go take a long walk off a short pier but jesus he doesn't make it that easy for us Again, he's jackhammering on an open nerve here. And the reason he doesn't make it that easy for us is because of the very specific characters that he uses to illustrate these people and those people. So here's where we're gonna dive into who tax collectors and Pharisees are. Let's start with Pharisees. At the time when Jesus spoke this parable, the people of Israel had already had a long and storied existence of difficulty. They had spent centuries generation after generation, in exile, in captivity, in slavery, in poverty, and as conquered people, all because of their disobedience to God. They had enjoyed many times of wealth and power, but all of those times of kind of being on the mountain, so to speak, had ended with falling off the ledge because of their own disobedience. They were a people who were afraid of their own frailty. They were completely aware of their own unrighteousness. They'd been humbled over and over again. And they knew it was only a matter of time before it happened again. Enter the Pharisees into the picture. The Pharisees were born out of a group that came along about 300 years before the birth of Jesus. And they were born out of the scribes or experts of the law. The scribes were people who devoted their entire lives to basically Xeroxing the Word of God one letter at a time. They knew the Word of God like the back of their hands, and so they were reasonably considered to be experts in the law. And the role of the Pharisees as experts of the law was to act as a barrier against sinful rebellion on behalf of the people. As one commentator put it, they took the extensive laws of the Old Testament covenant and multiplied them and made, made them ridiculously specific. And they demanded the adherence of those laws, those very specific laws, as a way of preventing the people from disobeying the big laws. They were the protectors of the nation and the ones who would not allow Israel to fall, as it had so many times before. And that's quite a powerful role to be in. In fact, their power was nearly absolute. Of course, power brings with it corruption, and the Pharisees were no different. Over the generations, their zealous protection of Israel had turned into hypocritical, dramatic shows of boasting self-righteousness. Everything they did was showy, so they could appear to everyone around them as if they were righteous and clean. They publicly and loudly performed as if they were being obedient to their own laws, but they only did that when people were watching. Jesus pointed this out in Matthew 23 when he said, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The people knew it. They knew what was going on. But at the same time, the Pharisees were still the only and official protectors of the righteousness of Israel, the only ones who could influence their current captors, the Romans. And so they were given respect and honor. To the people of Israel, the Pharisees were a very necessary evil. And this is who Jesus is directly addressing in this parable. So let's talk about the tax collector for a minute. These guys weren't just IRS agents. This career was so ubiquitous with downright evil that tax collector in the Bible is its own category of sinner. There's murderers, there's adulterers, there's thieves, there's liars... And then there's tax collectors. They were thought of as the worst of sinners. They were considered like pagans and simply taking on the career of a tax collector meant automatic excommunication from the people of God. So what was so bad about them? Well, the tax burden at that time was a minimum of 30 to 40% of what the people earned. And in addition to that, to that the individual tax collectors would add an arbitrary assessment onto the taxes they were collecting uh, to line their own pockets. They essentially could charge whatever they felt like charging, and the people had no choice but to pay. And if they wanted even more money, they would come up with uh, false crimes that they would accuse people of and then extort them for, for the privilege of not reporting those crimes to the authorities. They were extortionists. They were like the mafia only exponentially worse they were the worst of the worst and this is who jesus sets us up to see on the other end of the spectrum from the pharisee so we're left having to decide between these two sides who do we identify with the fine upstanding arrogant hypocrite or the absolute worst of the worst that's an uncomfortable position to be in having to make that choice because most of us think to ourselves, you know, I have issues, but I'm not really that bad. I'm a good husband, I'm a good friend, I'm a good employee, I'm a good dad. Sure, sometimes I'm selfish. Sometimes I get angry, like pretty much every moment on I-95. <laughs> sometimes I say things I shouldn't. Sometimes I look at things I shouldn't. Sometimes I buy things I shouldn't. I can remember last year in the middle of COVID, the UPS truck or FedEx truck coming down the driveway and my wife looks at me and says, Amazon again, really? Sometimes we put things in our bodies that we shouldn't. When I worked in food service, after a 12 or 14 hour shift, I would stop at the gas station at 1 a.m. for dinner, which was usually like Andy Capp's hot fries and a milkshake and that was the first thing I'd eaten all day. We do things to ourselves that are wrong. But am I some awful person who's done everything so wrong that he deserves contempt, like some people I can think of? I like how the message paraphrases this section of the parable. It says, he told this next story to some Who are complacently pleased with themselves over their moral performance and look down their noses at the common people. There goes that hammer hitting that nerve. That's hard to hear. Because if we think that way, then we've chosen the side of the Pharisee. Lynn and I recently got chickens, and we were warned by several people that there is such a thing as a pecking order with chickens. You can't avoid it, it's just how they act. People tend to act the same way. We set ourselves up as being on a certain rung in the ladder of righteousness, and we peck at people who we believe or perceive are on the rungs below us, who are not quite as righteous as we are as we are. We say, yeah, I'm not perfect. Maybe I'd even go so far as to say I'm kind of bad, but I'm not that bad. Now, there's no problem in gently and respectfully calling out a brother or sister in their sin, which we'll actually see Jesus do in a few minutes. But when we use someone else's sin and struggle to measure ourselves against and boast in our own more righteous behavior, then we've sinned ourselves and we've assumed the identity of the Pharisee. Again, the Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. The Pharisee is checking the boxes of what he has done righteously, and he's using that inventory to measure himself against the checkbox inventory of others. The problem with that is there is no room ever in God's kingdom for a heart that is not humble and contrite. There's no room for pride. There's no room for arrogance. There's no room for self-seeking fame. Philippians 2.3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. If we're seeking to be Christ-like, then we have to follow in the footsteps of Christ, emptying ourselves completely. If we are to love as Christ loved, then we have to abandon any sense that we're above anybody else. We cannot be the Pharisee. So then we must be the tax collector. The truth is, I am a traitor against God. I'm a turncoat. I have willingly received the shiny gifts offered by the enemy, the temptations, and I've collaborated with him to rebel against my creator. I am apart from God, the worst of the worst. What Paul says in 1 Timothy 1:15 rings absolutely true to me. He says, "This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance: Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them." But look what he says right after. "But I have received mercy." For this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. The truth is, if God can save me, he can save anyone. Another very important point about this parable is that Jesus isn't, is not condemning the Pharisees in it. Instead, we see the grace of God. We see the grace of God abound in this confrontation in which he is directly and boldly pointing out their sin. How is that gracious? Well, I've had multiple surgeries, and for each one of them, thankfully, they all started with being put to sleep by an anesthesiologist. When I would wake up, the only thing left of all the painful slicing open and removal of several parts of my body, a tumor in my neck and my gallbladder, a huge chunk of my intestines, was a relatively small amount of pain. I had missed 99% of that pain, never had to experience it, and I have no memory of it. However, the surgical removal of sin that God does in our lives is never like that. When God removes sin from our lives, we are awake and we are aware of the surgery going on, and it is painful, and that's no accident. You see, God is merciful to us in the physical healing process because there's really no profit in that kind of pain, but there is profit in the pain that comes in the process of healing from sin. We learn from that process. We see in slicing sharp reality the consequences of sin. We see the cost that the Son of God paid on the cross for that sin. We see that God's grace, while freely given, is not cheap. Maybe we've hurt someone with our words, gossiped about someone, lied to someone, been unfaithful as a friend or a spouse. When we confess that to God, repent of it, and go to that person and ask for forgiveness, we are willingly putting ourselves under the surgeon's knife, opening up our very hearts so that he can remove pride, envy, greed, lust, selfishness, or whatever else there is there that shouldn't be there. And that painful removal is instructive to us in the sense that it puts up a massive barrier that gets in the way and helps us resist the temptation not to do that thing again. What Jesus is doing here in this parable is taking a surgical light and shining it directly onto the cancer that is destroying the hearts of these Pharisees in the hope that they will confess and that they will allow him to surgically remove it. And that is gracious and merciful because the opposite of that would be for Jesus to casually ignore their condition and passively watch as they march themselves into hell. Praise God that he is gracious and merciful with all of us. If you love someone, allowing your eyes to glaze over as they ruin themselves is not an option. And God loves us he loves all of us. He loves those of us who believe we are too far gone to be saved. Maybe we've, we're addicts and we've stolen and ruined lives. Maybe we've gossiped and destroyed friendship, friendships. Maybe we've turned our back on loved ones. Maybe even our own children to the point where it seems like there's no pathway to return. And he loves those of us who have deluded ourselves into thinking we're all that in a bag of chips. As the saying goes, Jesus loves us enough to accept us just the way we are when we come to him, but he loves us too much to allow us to stay that way. So if the love of Jesus is such that he wants to heal us, how does he go about doing that? Well, a brother of mine is home right now healing up from a horrific break to one of the bones in his leg. The process of healing started with some very specific, very painful steps, including surgery and a resetting of the bone and the addition of titanium and pins. He's like Iron Man now. I guarantee you he was very thankful to be asleep for all that. But those, if those initial steps hadn't taken place in the order that they were taken, healing would never occur completely. In the same way, there's a process of healing from sin and the effect that that sin has on us. And if there's breath in your lungs right now, then you have been damaged by sin. Maybe that damage came as a consequence of something that you did, like making destructive choices or hurting other people or yourself. Or maybe that damage came as a consequence of things beyond your control, like abusive parents, or some kind of trauma in your life that you couldn't avoid or escape. Either way, sin has infected all of our lives and done damage to all of us. So what's the process of healing from sin? Well, if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 23. And it says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. And now let's skip ahead five chapters to chapter nine and read this paragraph. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. You see what happened there? Two paragraphs, five chapters apart, virtually identical to one another. When a section of scripture is bookended like this, it's significant. It doesn't happen often, so when it does, it's a signal for us to pay special attention to what's in between those two bookends. This bookended section between chapters four and nine is known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In his sermon, he talks about the effect that worldly things have on our spiritual and emotional health. He talks about anxiety and worry. He talks about being judgmental. He talks about the longing that we feel to be loved the dangers of the lies that this world sends upon us, how the decay of sin can chain us down. He talks about anger and hatred, and even the effect on us of being insulted and ridiculed, and the effect on us when we insult, hate, and ridicule others. He talks about adultery and lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about lying and making promises we can't keep. He talks about being taken advantage of by others. He talks about the enemies we will have in this world, and what they will do to us. He talks about pride, self-indulgence, the idolatry of self-sufficiency. He talks about all the things that either happen to us or that we happen upon ourselves throughout our lives that cause damage, the damage and destruction of sin and the scars that it leaves behind. But he doesn't just point out the realities that we will encounter. He points out the healing process that is there for us to engage in. It's right there, right at our fingertips, spelled out in black and white, and it's commonly known as the Beatitudes. And in the very first of the eight Beatitudes, we find the principle that Jesus is teaching on in this parable. The, pur- the purpose of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, is to point out to each and every one of us where the healing process starts. And that is such an important thing that he had to shock us to get us to pay attention to it. He had to touch a nerve. So if you've ever bought something that's assembly required from that store down in New Haven, which I'm not going to name... You know the necessity of following a set of directions in the order that they're given. If you start at step four instead of step one, you're hosed. It's not going to happen. The Beatitudes are eight verses. And in those eight verses, we find the eight principles in the process of healing. And if you're going to engage in that process, then you absolutely have to start at the first one. And here's the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit simply means people who recognize their own spiritual poverty or their need for God. It's humility. It's the recognition of our absolute lack of power to overcome sin and be righteous and holy on our own. This is and has to be the very first step in the process of healing from the effects of sin. John Piper put it this way. He said, the condition that we must meet in order to have any dealing with God, is spiritual bankruptcy. It's the easiest and hardest condition of all. We don't get to proceed any further in the journey until we approach the throne of grace in utter and complete humility. If we do that, then Jesus promises, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's a present tense promise. Once you take that step, you have the kingdom of God. It's yours. The rest of what follows is yours for the taking as an inheritor of the kingdom. And that's the step that the tax collector was on in our parable. In verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me a sinner. And what was Jesus's response? He said, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the kingdom of heaven now belonged to this man because he had confessed and repented. The first step is hard. The rest of the steps are more easily accessible and they result in healing and sanctification. Mourning over our sin, being meek, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being peacemakers, enduring being strained from the standards of measurement of this world. These are the principles of healing that Jesus sets out for us to follow. Now, okay, maybe you're thinking to yourself, I can see that there's a process, but it sure would be easier to engage in it with others who are also seeking to engage in it, and especially with people who are farther along in that process, and who have already experienced healing and victory, maybe who can encourage encourage and guide me. Well, one place you can find exactly that is right here in this room, tomorrow night and every Monday night. You'll find me and my wife Lynn here engaging in that process. You'll find dozens of brothers and sisters in Christ engaging in that process of healing. And we do it together. And I'd like to personally invite you to join us. Not that we're special, we're just a bunch of those people.
1: Where did your dreams go? The dreams of childhood, wishes of the young and innocent heart, the hopes to make the team or to make the winning play, to make your family proud, the dreams to go somewhere, to do something, to become something, to get out ahead of the world, to leave behind your fears and worries, to see how vast and beautiful the world can be to discover, to dare, to dive in, to know and be known, to love and be loved. All of those dreams, where did they go? One day we wake up and we feel the weight of our decisions, the consequences of what we've done and what's been done to us, the words, the actions, the lies, the dictions, the shame, the cycles, anger, the spiral. There's an emptiness that sets in. and all the years, the days and the dreams that are gone, we wake up and realize we're not as strong as we think we are. And it may have taken a great sorrow for us to realize that. But thankfully, you're not the only one with a dream for your life. There is one, our maker. Our creator, the dream giver, who before you were even born had a plan for your life, a plan to prosper you and not to harm you. The one who imagined you, who delights in you, who gave up his own life for you. He has a plan for you. It's bigger than your mistakes, bigger than your regrets, bigger than all the hurts, hangups, and habits that have tried to steal your hope. No matter where you've been, and no matter what you've done, you're not too far gone. God is for you and his dreams for your future are good. A future of joy, a future of purpose, a future filled with redemption and renewal, promise and possibility. Don't stop now. Don't give up yet. This is the part where the story gets good, where the battles are won, where the prodigals come home, where the dead awaken to life, your past it's not your future there is a god who does the impossible there is more to come come rejoice with us welcome to celebrate recovery
0: you know god laid it all out for us in black and white And whether it's at Celebrate Recovery or in a small group or in a Bible study or knitting on the patio, going for a hike, grabbing coffee, the point is we engage in this healing process together in fellowship with one another. So however you can find it, be vulnerable, be real with each other, and we can heal. Thank you.